Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss technology, leadership, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time, and we learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we will be talking about our exponential future, the implications and benefits of exponential technology. We are talking to a person who has what I may call an exponential view on the future. Our special guest today is Azim Azar, calling in from London. He's the curator of Exponential View, a newsletter read by tens of thousands of leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. He's an award-winning entrepreneur and investor currently working as the senior advisor for AI to the CTIO of Accenture. He serves as a member of the editorial board of the Harvard Business Review and previously held corporate roles at Reuters and the BBC and served as an editor at The Economist and The Guardian. I'm so happy to speak to you again, Azim. Thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah, Isabel, it's been far too long. It's great to hear from you. <laughs> so uh, we would like to uh, let our listeners uh, get to know you a little bit better by asking a few questions to warm you up. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think this is, a, this is a good question because I know that it's uh, morning over in London. Uh, what is your morning routine, uh, Azim? Uh, well, my morning routine is pretty habituated now because I tend to be one of the earlier people to uh, wake up in the family. So I I tend to get up, uh, go downstairs, uh, try to avoid checking my phone uh, first thing in the morning and make myself and my wife some coffee, uh, deliver it to her. And then I will normally use that opportunity to get started and and catch up with uh, what has been going on over the previous 12 to 14 hours. Hmm. You sound like a very nice uh, husband. Uh, when was the last time you stepped out of your comfort zone? Oh, that's a great question. So I think I I try to uh, I try to not quite seek out things that are outside of my comfort zone, but I'm not too worried about uh, trying something new. And, and I guess the last time um, would probably have been. Oh, that's actually quite a hard one. I think the last time would probably have been when I had to uh, give a presentation to a group of seven and eight-year-olds, which was quite interesting. I'm used to presenting to uh, adults. Uh, Seven-year-olds are much more challenging. I can imagine. How did it go? Uh, they ask questions that I did not expect them to ask and, and also try to maintain your own sense of composure in the face of rapid chaos uh, <laughs> that slowly builds up in front of a classroom of young kids is, uh, is quite a new skill. And what was, the, what was the craziest question you got asked? Well, I was presenting on uh, AI and robotics. So I was trying to... Ex- For seven-year-olds? Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're never too, le- too late to learn. Um, the bit that I was trying to get across was... Um, how might you design an algorithm to uh, explain cattishness rather than doggishness? Uh, and and so that was, uh, that, I think that was conceptually quite tough for them. I'm, I, I'm very excited to see how you actually did that. But uh... well, cats, cats have got pointed ears, cats have got a particular smile and whiskers, but then some dogs have got pointed ears and some dogs have got visible whiskers. Uh, so what, what is it about a cat that makes a cat a cat and not a dog? And, and trying to get that across through uh, an interactive dialogue is, is yeah, I'd say it's, it's probably pushing a seven-year-old's ability. <laughs> but, uh, but it sounds like a good way to learn because this was AI and image recognition you were trying to explain? Just AI in general, you know, just explain to them uh, the, the set of technologies that they will be living with more than anything else. Uh, I think there are so many myths and their parents have probably not 
got the criticality in general um, or the subject matter expertise to go in and start to explain some of these concepts. And the concepts themselves are actually they, they make sense when you explain them uh, in, in, I think, clear and slightly more high level ways than when you um, use very, very formalized methods to explain what's going on. So we're going to be talking a lot about uh, technology today, but uh, before I start picking your brain on the technology, I'm very curious to know how you do what you do, because every single Sunday you send out a very comprehensive newsletter with not only the most exciting things happening in technology, but you also provide a personal analysis on why they're important and how they affect us. And I guess... I'm just curious to know how on earth you're able to stay up to date with everything that's going on everywhere. And secondly, how you've been able to become one of the world's, I would say, best newsletters on these topics. Well, thank you. So I'm going to let you in uh, and your listeners on to two secrets. The first is... um, the newsletter isn't comprehensive. And the second is I'm not up to date with every, with everything um, everywhere. I mean, what we do within the newsletter is uh, we try to provide my selection of what I think is interesting based on what I have seen. So I think of myself uh, as, a, as an artisanal producer. I'm running a little artisanal restaurant. And what I serve in the week um, is based on what I was able to get at the market. Um, if there were pu- pumpkins in the market, I can serve you a pumpkin dish. If there were no pumpkins, I can't serve you a pumpkin dish. So in that sense, I'm very different to a Starbucks or a McDonald's, which has such a robust supply chain, they can always give you exactly what you want. Um, and so Ex- Exponential View, which is my newsletter, is um, based on my pickings of what's available um, out there. Uh, And what I'm asking you to do is to trust me to know where to pick and trust me to know to make that selection um, in a way that is sensible. Um, And there there is so much going on in the world, and I'm not a professional journalist in any sense, it's really impossible to to be comprehensive. And so, so what I think about is, if you want my interpretation of what's going on, and if you trust that interpretation, and if you like it, then you should you should read this because I've been working for you know twenty five years essentially in the internet industry that entire time. But if I trace my history of interest into how technology plays into the economy and into the political economy, uh, that really goes back throughout my throughout my childhood, because I was a child of the microprocessor revolution. Uh, my, I have my first computer, which I got in 1981. Uh, I still have it. It still works. But I grew up in a family of uh, economists. Um, and, and so I had these twin influences on me. And, and frankly, I've been doing that now as a result for nearly 40 years. So I have ways of interpreting what what is going on uh, and some of that really bakes back all the way back to my teens when i didn't have the analytical frameworks but i did have the practical experience of seeing new products come out and remembering how the news media talked about it and remembering what its impact was on local businesses uh, that i could things that i could physically see or or shops i could walk into and that's i think what gives me this basis of saying I feel quite comfortable and confident in trying to tell this story even if i never sell it tell a perfect story or a complete one yeah, it's really, really, really excellent because it makes you, I feel like every time I read that on Sundays, I'm like, okay, now I'm like up to date with everything that's going on in the world, at least not everything, but like the most important stories. And it gives you a 
different, I guess, insight on it than most media outlets would. So uh, I think it's really, really, really good. I I suggest everyone uh, subscribe to it. But then Mm, you also have a podcast under the same name and uh, you regularly interview experts from around the world. And your knowledge on the future, as we just talked about, it's a lot higher than most uh, people. But given everything that you know, if you were to uh, kind of boil it down into what the major, I guess, top two or three trends that we should be following right now, why are we following them and why are they important? Oh, uh, yeah, that's um, that's a great question. Um, if you'd asked me that question five or six years ago, uh, we would have the trends would have been very, very functional and technology oriented. You would have talked about virtual reality and augmented reality because. Uh, you know, Magic Leap and, and, and Oculus and so on were are being funded. And you might have talked about the early AI companies. Um, but in 2019, uh, what, what I think we end up realizing is that there's a very, very significant schism and divergent, divergence happening in the world today that is uh, naturally enabled by technology that, and that in of itself is driving technology. I, I, and so I think it's hard to simply sit down and say, hey, algorithms are improving really quickly. And now let's get excited about it and wave our hands and get delighted about what the technology will do. We actually have to go back and say, um, how come we are seeing such uh, significant pressures on entire business models and entire industries? How come we are seeing such pressures emerge in uh, political systems and political fracturing in things that looked very, very stable? Why do we now start, uh, and people are doing this, why do we now start saying, well, of course, the Chinese will do it better because they have an authoritarian state and are unburdened by the, uh, the, 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 tri- the trivial task of making a democracy work? Uh, and, and we also ask questions about the climate uh, boundary and the planetary sustainability, which is exogenous. Uh, to to whatever we do as as humans, but absolutely impacts our survival. So so what I find interesting is that the the whole set of questions that we talk about now have in some sense got some deep connection to to technology. The reason why people are starting to look with some starry-eyed reverence towards the Chinese model is because they believe that this authoritarian approach, which is able to align military research, civilian research, commercial activity, and the state's activities, is significantly enables what you can deliver through AI. And vastly improved AI will improve your ability to execute across all of those four fronts. Now, that's a far cry from where we were 15, 20 years ago, when we said, well, actually, liberal democracy and decentralized information um, of liberal democracy and then entrepreneurship is a way that you drive countries forward. That's been a really distinct shift over the last four years. So I spend a lot of time looking at the technology, but it's not sufficient to get excited by the next 4K video camera or 8K monitor. Uh, It's really a much harder question around how is this going to result in sort of systemic shift around the institutions, whether they're political or business or economic that surround us and, and govern the way the world that we live in. You mentioned uh, Asia and how we're looking to China with AI and everything. And, I, and at least uh, from an American perspective, I guess there's some worry when you think about everything that they're going to be able to do and develop and how that's going to be applied. Because, I mean, the, the rules uh, are a little bit different over there. Mm-hmm. Are you, wh- how do you look at that? I mean, are you worried at all or do you think that we'll figure it out? Do you th- how, how do you see that going forward the next two or three years? 
Well, I think the uh, the key thing about understanding that balance is is that the game isn't uh, isn't over yet. There's a desire in the media to paint things in very very simple stark colours. Uh, we call it today. We call it. Uh, clickbait. Uh, but in, in my day, when I started as a journalist 25 years ago, the line was, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, and so media presentation of these stories needs to necessarily be uh, quite simple in order to make it to the headlines. So that's a long way, way around of saying, it, I think that the nature of the development is very, very much more nuanced than we currently expect and is currently painted. I think it is fair to say that China and the US are leaders relative to Europe on the in the field of AI. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that China has a tremendous amount of momentum. And because it can align cities and provinces and the military and research institutions, and to some extent, the private sector, that gives it a a very, very powerful advantage in terms of being able to access data and then implement these systems in, in society. But we also know that there is always a pushback. There is always a dyna dynamic and a process of equilibration that takes place. And one small example is that people have talked extensively about China exporting its technology through the Belt and Road Initiative. But when I've spoken to people who are down on the ground in some of the recipient countries, uh, for example, Pakistan, they say that, well, actually, on that frontier, local businesses and the local government is pushing back on the Chinese companies. And, and so just as just as the story of Facebook conquering the world is nuanced by the pushback of the German competition authorities or the British Parliament in small ways, um, I think that is true when we try to interpret what's going on within the developments of, of, of AI and where they're, where they're really taking place. On the note of that, um, in terms of AI, when we worked together in Shipstead back in London in 2016, uh, at the time, everyone was talking about AI, and it turned out that 2017 and 2018 were all about AI too. And now you're the senior advisor for AI for the CTIO at Accenture. And first of all, I'm curious to know what your job really entails and entails, I mean, and how you've seen the conversation about AI evolve over all the years that you've been in the technology sector. And maybe, I mean, this is a long question, but what specific industries or applications do you think that will start seeing AI truly realize it, its potential in 2019? Because I, I know that a lot of people still are saying that, oh, it's just a hype, like it's so far from actually being useful. Oh, where are these people who are saying it's I a know. hype? I know. <laughs> well, they're everywhere. Trust some. me. Amazing. Amazing. Well, uh, short their company stock would be my advice. Uh, <laughs> so, so if you think about the, the key breakthrough uh, in AI from a technical perspective of, of the current wave was in 2011, when we managed to get deep learning um, to do some amazing things around uh, image recognition. So we've had now eight years of that stuff going from a, a laboratory toy to becoming operational and something you can deploy at scale. And so that is definitely um, started to started to happen, uh, and and so I think you know Accenture has said publicly, and and other companies have as well, that uh, the AI theme has been the fastest growing enterprise IT uh, investment theme they'd ever seen. Uh, in other words, it's growing faster than adoption of cloud. It's growing faster than adoption of mobile and adoption of uh, CRM and, and and ERP in the sort of generations previously. So companies are really really turning to it because. Um, it is now 
as a technology uh, sufficiently good, it doesn't have to be perfect, uh, to be implemented. And, and because they've spent 30 years building digital infrastructure across their enterprises, they've also got the underlying infrastructure on which you can put improved software, which is a, you know, a more generic word for AI, improved software, uh, on, onto systems. Uh, but I think it's also important to recognize that uh, what's happening in artificial intelligence is not just about the applications that we see when we engage with our bank or we take a photo of an object and the phone tells us what what that object is. Those very much are the most more mature applications. And there are a very, very large number of different waves of research that are rapidly coming up behind the existing ones. And, And so, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that AI systems or natural language understanding for sake of argument can't currently pause, that is, understand a conversation that has complicated sentences and spans over a dialogue between two people, right? It's why the interactions with your Alexa in general are so stunted. You can't go off and say, you know, Alexa, what what time is the next train? And it gives you an answer. And then you say, well, buy me tickets for the one after. Uh, that doesn't work yet, but but it will. It will soon. And that's an active area of research where great progress is being made uh, in the university labs. So when we look at look at this sort of wave of AI, I think the thing is that while it can be a normal assumption now that if you're a company and if you're dealing with any visual data, you're going to use deep, deep learning to process that data and to figure out what to do with it and kick, kick off a decision. But you should be looking further and further into your applications and starting to say within the next year or three or two years or three years, I will have the capability to put an AI system into this process. And, and so I, I imagine um, if you picture a landscape that there is both a research into absolutely novel techniques and there is research in applying existing techniques that are now mature, like deep learning, to applications where they haven't yet been applied. And and that creates this incredibly febrile and fertile environment for research and for development and for this this stuff to 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 come to market. I, I sometimes go back and look at what I was writing in 2014 or 2015 or look at my presentations. In 2015 or 16 I could I could barely keep up with the level of research and breakthrough that was coming in in this field. And now looking back on it three years later, it looks as if there was nothing happening at that time because the, the amount of research and breakthroughs and work that is, have, have, has gone on has increased so much. So have we just been normalized to all the change that's happening? It's just become like a, it's, it's just normal for us that everything is going so rapidly? That's a really great uh, description of it. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that what happens is that we, we forget that, you know, progress in, in the laboratories or in the startups is very rarely hockey stick. I mean, it's grinding it out, making mistakes here, making mistakes there, learning, improving, learning, improving. And, and we sit on the outside looking for the next you know, high dopamine hit of the amazing technological breakthrough. And, and so we, at this stage, we, sort of, we, we may not be looking at these things because we're not involved in the, the sort of tedious world of progressive research. Um, and so as people in the mainstream, yes, we're probably getting a little bit normalized and maybe a little bit bored of it, what, uh, which, which means we get set up to be surprised with where, what the world looks like in two or three years. And, and I think that's very much captured by something that Gartner, which is an in- industry analyst um, uh, firm, uh, calls the hype cycle. 
Um, and the hype cycle essentially looks like this curve, which has got a very, very high spike where everyone gets overexcited. Then they get despondent because you don't meet their expectations and they get very, very skeptical. And because people are then skeptical, their expectations lower. And then you get this gentle incline where people really get excited because they're no longer uh, they, they've gone from being overexcited to highly skeptical and now every small piece of evidence you give them eats at their skepticism and i think for certain classes of, of ai we are now at that uh at that point where yeah. we're climbing up that slope I, I i was also thinking about the law of accelerating returns as you were talking because uh the whole thing of being normalized to this extreme development uh for those who don't know the law of accelerating returns i think it was a term coined by Ray Kurzweil, where he talks about how the better technology we have, the more information we have, the more we're collaborating, the faster and faster and faster we're able to develop. Um, so we're not necessarily thinking about the dramatic shift from 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 how much it felt like for 10 years ago until today, oh, because things are... Let me, gi- yeah. let me give you a fantastic example of that, which I know you're involved in uh, girls who can code and getting young women into technology and science. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in January, I was in Dublin for um, uh, an event called the BT Young Scientists Award. And what they do is they get um, thousands of 16 and 17 year olds from Irish schools. This is a very small economy. It makes Norway look like a big country, which is my <laughs> guess. Um, and, and they get them to collaborate and build science projects. So I went to one of the, saw one of these stands, there are hundreds of entrants. And there was a young woman called Laura, she was 17 years old. And she had built a deep neural net network, uh, to do image recognition to classify pap smears for cervical cancer because there had been a scandal in the Irish hospital um, system where they had failed to diagnose a bunch of women with with cancer. And her AI system identified these tumours or or, um, malign uh, smears more accurately than doctors, a 97% accuracy. Now, the the thing is, she was 17 years old. Wow. And this was one of her first programming projects ever. And she had used a technique, particular technique that had only been in a Stanford University lab four years earlier. So when you think about the law of accelerating returns, the arrival of open source and open communities and Wikipedia and open data had allowed a 17-year-old from a high school in a rural county in Ireland to build an AI system that could detect cancer as well as a surgeon in certain kind of closed test conditions using a mathematical technique that was in a, in a postdoc research lab only a few years earlier in Stanford University. Exactly. Now, when I was her age, in 1989, before the Berlin Wall fell, um, it might have taken 15, 20 years for that knowledge to diffuse out of universities into textbooks. <laughs> I mean, it's honestly, it's just crazy to think about, but uh, it's also kind of wonderful. I mean, that technology that she created, I mean, it's it's tremendously useful. It's it's not just, you know, something, a cool app that uh, she made. I mean, it can actually be very, very uh, useful, life-saving even. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to shift gears a little bit because in, in your newsletter, you often highlight some of the potential consequences um, from the technologies we're dabbling with. For example, in your newsletter a few months ago, you talked about the Chinese scientist Jiankui He, who used CRISPR to edit embryos, mm-hmm. uh, which later um, presumably became the first gene-edited babies, perhaps resistant to HIV. And the world was in shock. But honestly, I wasn't very surprised because it seems like basically every avenue that you would look down, the technology is already ready way before we are. 
and way before regulation is. Um, and then I also read in your newsletter before Christmas that 24 Amazon workers were hospitalized after a warehouse robot tore open a can of bear repellent. And I think that's kind of another great example of the unforeseen challenges coming from technology, given that these incidents could probably happen to a human as well. But then for some reason, we hold our robots at a way higher standard. But in your view, uh, and it's a big question that you can answer however you want, mm -hmm. uh, what are the biggest challenges coming from technology that we should be aware of? And I guess you could you could narrow down to like a sector or a problem or a specific te technology because I know that question's big. Yeah, it is. It is big. Um, I mean, the challenge with um, technology is, and, and research is that by its definition, it's at the cutting edge, uh, and so it will it has to by definition run ahead of where our where our legislation is unless our legislation is um ex uh, extremely prohibitive uh, of those sorts of uh, discoveries which it, which it could be right so the rules and regulations um in in Europe prior to the um the enlightenment did not much favor uh, scientific exploration so we will have a continuous set of um, challenges insofar as we separate out technology from the questions of ethics and and, and politics and judgment. And, and we've done that for a long time. So so for a long time, it was okay for a uh, it was okay for a, a politician or even a business leader to say, I don't understand technology. Uh, and then laugh about it and move on. Now, I think the only way that you actually address um, the the fact that we live and have lived in an age of accelerating technology is to ensure that people are aware of how it emerges, um, what the key pressure points are, what are the discussions that are structural or related to to power. And I think that those that that environment has really changed over the last four or five years, at least within my milieu, where more and more people accept that. Uh, and so it's not sufficient <clears throat> to go off and show an amazing demonstration of a piece of technology because you'll increasingly be asked, um, and who is that going to benefit? And which groups are going to be disadvantaged by it? And um, how could that be used in a negative way? Uh, and th those were not questions that were asked very widely 10 or 15 years ago, but they're increasingly being asked. Now, that's not to slow down the rate of, of development. I think Kurzweil, you, you quoted him, the accelerating returns, though they describe attributes of the system that, that are inescapable. You know, there are more smart people who have more processing power, who are more well-connected, who can share this uh, material, know-how and insight um, over the internet. Uh, and so you're going to continually see um, large groups of people tinkering teasing testing and and pushing the ground the ground forward and increasingly states are realizing this is the only way they can compete uh with with each other so states are putting investment in what you can do is you can be more engaged uh as people who uh live outside the system um and say listen we want to be engaged and we want to be asking the questions and i think a very good good example to be honest is is facebook right you know so so people are now whinging and moaning about facebook's uh market dominance and its use of data um and its abuse of data and its control over what news and imagery we can see as individuals but that's been pretty well known about for many 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 years um and and in fact 
it was three years ago that uh, the the Norwegian newspaper, I think it was VG or was it Afton Post? I think it may have been VG had that problem with um, Facebook censoring the world's most famous war photograph, uh, which was a photo of a young girl naked who had just mm. been burnt by American napalm, and. Facebook decided that that broke its rules around whatever child exploitation, uh, the, the showing of the photo, not the dropping of napalm by an American on a nine-year-old girl. Um, and and they, they demonstrated they had an editorial role, but it was pretty well known about. And if you'd read my newsletter in the previ year previous, you would have seen lots of those things sort of talked about then. And if you go further back, those discussions were pretty clear within the industry, as were the discussions about Facebook's use and abuse of data. But the mainstream decided that that was an other to them and they didn't want to be interested in it. They didn't want to pay attention, ask the questions, spend the time up until the point that they turned around and said, hey, now it's really important and I'm going to have an opinion about it. So, so I think if you, don't, if you don't choose to understand the programmers, you will be the programmed. If you don't choose to understand how to control the machines, the machines will control you. If you don't choose to understand how power emerges, you will be subject to that power. You may still be subject to that power if you do choose to understand it, but at least you can be subject to it with some degree of criticality and at least you have a chance of figuring out how to change that relationship. So when we look at the issues of, of technology, there is, it is inescapable that these developments are going to continue to happen. They're going to continue to happen more rapidly. They're going to continue to happen in old ways that we're familiar with and new ways. And it's not sufficient to take the attitude that we did take in the late, late 90s, early 2000s, which is to say, hey, liberal democracy has won. We can now all enjoy fast fashion uh, and, and great packaged holidays. Uh, and that's enough. I mean, that's just, that's just not enough. And it's certainly not enough when we put the limits of the planetary boundaries uh, around the problem set that we face. Yeah, I saw that you recently introduced into your newsletter... Um something about uh, the CO2 levels in the world mm -hmm. and how we can't reach 450, I think it was, and that you wanted people to share it. Very uh, good. I think it's important to raise awareness in all channels that we can. Um, but talking about environments that have changed in, and newspapers, because you were talking about Aftenposten Weg, yeah? Yeah. Uh, I actually wanted to talk to you about the media landscape and how you see that changing. Um, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, we, we used to work together in Shipston's uh, London offices, Uh, and for those who don't know what Shipstead is, uh, it's a conglomerate or a media conglomerate in Norway and in Sweden. Um, but obviously, Shipstead is not alone in being one of the traditional media companies uh, threatened by the continuing uprise of alternative platforms for media consumption. And obviously, their um, advertising dollars are being consumed by all the major tech companies, specifically Google and Facebook at most. And I think that we both agree that fact-checked and objective media is very important for a democracy. And I don't think that I'm the only one that's worried about the loss of media houses and newspapers. You've you've worked in several different newspapers, so I'm sure that you uh, feel strongly about that too. But how do you see, with your experience, how do you see the the media evolving over the next few years? Uh, it's a really interesting. Uh... It's a really interesting question. Um, we've just had a review in the UK um, looking at, at media, but more importantly, high quality journalism, which includes local journalism, uh, because there's a belief that the the act and the act of journalism, um, especially high quality journalism, is a good way of keeping power to account, um, and and that if that journalism then gets read by people. 
It's a second issue. Um, it's very important. It's a very important way of building a, a, a dialogue and, and trust within within societies. And our high quality journalism and our local journalism in the UK has been the the, the two areas that are really really suffering as we as we do this switch to digital and as you say Google and Facebook uh, start to take the advertising dollars and in the Facebook space as well actually actively determine what of the newspaper output gets read so one of the conclusions we came to within the UK context was that we're going to need a we're going to need a support from the government in order to fill the gap for some of these input this important but non-economic journalism which will certainly be the local journalism uh, and you know most people live in their localities so we often like to think about big questions like you know fake news and, and so on but actually what way we spend most of our time is in our local communities and dealing with the roadworks or you know water main that's burst or something uh, and, and so i think depending on your market you're going to see a uh, a growth in state support to fill the gaps uh, of certain types of reporting. Now, that's not going to happen in the US, but it may happen in the European, um, given the European culture and sensibilities. And you'll also start to see many more emerging experimental models uh, come out. So what could you do in a, in a community using software tools to be able to provide uh, local news of it and information and allow the people who are most reliable perhaps even professional professionally trained to rise to the top and a good example of that is a, a service called front door or is it front porch i forget maybe it's front porch which is in the u.s it's it, think imagine a bit it like a bit like um a slack for your local uh community or village um, now the question is how can you actually pay for the people who are trained and who are actually going to spend their time doing the research and the reporting. And I think there'll be a few models, everything from subscriptions through to direct support, through to state support and grants, and which model emerges is going to vary from country to country. I actually want to uh, ask you about uh, your uh, your thoughts on the marketing industry, because uh, to do a little throwback into your entrepreneurial venture in uh, 2009, you founded Peer Index, mm -hmm. a company that uses machine learning to large-scale social media graphs to make predictions about web users. And that was acquired by Brandwatch in 2014. And you've been in the space for some time. And I think most of our listeners who are working in marketing, and that's related to the media, which was the the other question, because obviously you're, they're going to have to think not only state funding, but also completely new business models. Um, but they're all well aware of how fast their business is changing. And then I, I read a very interesting, or I didn't read the whole article yet. I'm, I'm working through it. But a, a, an interesting article that you had in your newsletter this week by Kelly Kevin Kelly about the mirror world, mm -hmm. um, uh, talking about how uh, Magic Leap and AR and everything is it might, uh, might change uh, the way we experience the world, basically. But how do you think that the huge growth in data combined with AI, which we've talked about, and AR and VR and so on, is going to change the digital marketing space? I mean, what what real opportunities do you think that there are there? Because there's a lot of what I call techno porn, where it's like, you know, the HoloLens and it's all these magic leaps and all these amazing kinds of technologies. But I mean, are they realistic? Is this is this where the the business is going or do you think that's kind of a little bit too sci-fi? Uh, well, 
I hope not. I hope it's not where business is going. Um, and I think there's a, a fundamental problem with fitting the way in which most marketers conceive of what they do inside the question of uh, sustainable boundaries. Uh, so, so most marketers believe their job is probably believe their job is just to sell more stuff, and so they're looking for new tools to distract us. Uh, so those tools went from. Uh, banner adverts on websites in 1994 through to uh, animated banners through to video through to video overlays through to video pre-roll that you can't avoid um, at every time uh, what they're saying is we want to distract you and take up your time in order to persuade you to buy something that you wouldn't have bought if we hadn't interrupted you right that's essentially the story of marketing today um, and so it's very very far removed from my uh, explicit need. And, and and I think that the danger that we face with these, these technologies is that we give tools to people who are really focused on, on one thing, which is that generating that demand from the consumer, who don't then have to think about the costs to that consumer or the other costs that might emerge from their activities. Now you're sitting in 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 Sweden, and Sweden has you know major fashion label. I believe Hens and Moritz, right? H and M are Swedish. Is that correct? Yeah, H and M, right? Mm-hmm. So fast fashion is one of the uh, most egregious abusers of um, our environment because uh, of their use of artificial, um, you know, petrochemical based fibers. And and what they've managed to do is they've made a they've managed to change construct this business which involves producing good-looking, low-quality, almost single-use clothes, right? No one keeps their H&M top that they bought for six euros for a decade. You, you wear it four times and it goes in the bin and it bin ends up in a landfill. And actually, it took a lot of energy and a lot of carbon to produce in the first place. So the question is, do we actually want to be able to support those marketers? Do we want to support that business model at a time when fast fashion is one of the key contributors to... Uh, the depletion of our our carbon budget. So you asked me a question about marketing, and my response is um, we have to actually ask the question about consumption. And so long as marketing is connected to consumption, I think it's it's got some real issues uh, that it, that it needs to contend with. Uh, and the harder question is how do we break that link? How do we recognise that people actually do get joy out of refreshing their look? That people do get joy out of a that not the sense of purchasing, but the sense of uh, kind of personal expression. But how can we do that in a way that that isn't taxing us on the few things that actually really matter to us as humans? So we have a limit amount limited amount of carbon budget left um, in in the biosphere that keeps us alive, and we have a limited amount of personal attention. And I don't know whether I want it to live on a pre roll advertisement, and so. I'm 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 skeptical. I don't really get excited by the idea of immersive, personalised marketing. Um, I've really been got well beyond that. I mean, it's been nearly thirty years that people have been talking about personalised marketing or implementing it, and we have to start to ask other questions of it. Whose responsibility is it? I guess I mean it's shared in some ways, but it seems today that every business is kind of like throwing itself on one sustainability goal, which I mean, in and of itself is a good thing um, because everyone's taking more environmental responsibility. But at the same time, it's like this shift that we have to make in us as individuals. And as you say, we have this innate need to kind of want to look good and to refresh our look and all this kinds of stuff. But who, who, I mean, 
how do we change this in the best possible way? Are you able to kind of like change the way you live? Would you be able to, as a marketer wanting to increase sales as much as possible, would you be able to kind of teach your potential consumers a kind of behavior that doesn't feed into this consumption frenzy that is very detrimental to our environment? I think it's a very, I think it's a very hard question. Um, and it, 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 but it requires um, change at a number of different levels. So as, a, as companies, you might want to take certain steps to, ident- to point out that you are living within a, within a sort of rule of circularity, that perhaps you're doing more than your fair share when it comes to uh, delivering some degree of sustainability. Um, and I think as, a, as, as consumers, you need to express that. And so we, you know, the millennials are driving change as a result, right? Because they're starting to ask these questions and saying, we're not going to buy products that, that don't have this sort of certification. That, that, that I think is, is pretty important. But, but I think the other thing that we need to, to, to figure out is figure out how we allowed corporations, which have a strong profit motive at their heart, to make their way into so many parts of human interaction and to therefore determine how those interactions play out. And that particular question is is the one that should probably vex many marketers because that's the one where, which goes back 30 or 40 years, right? How much is too much when we think about interrupting and intervening in people's own headspace and mental space and then we get to the harder question which is well if we're not allowed to do that then how are we going to fund those activities right because you you ultimately you do need people to buy in order to 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 fund the pair of shoes or to fund the magazine that the advert is running in so i don't pretend that these are easy questions but i i I would argue that we're spending more time more time and intellectual cycles on on questions of how do we create more immersive marketing experiences or how do we get people to buy more crap, then perhaps we should be um, considering that we've got a whole bunch of much bigger challenges and uh, frankly much more interesting challenges to deal with. And those challenges being things like, you know, we uh, the environmental one is a big one, but we've got questions of, of social care and aging populations, of workforce automation, um, and how we're going to deal with that. We've got this new multipolar world that is probably more fractious. We're still in a world where we have this terrible gender imbalance, which is result left sort of ineffectively addressed, um, and 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 so I'm not sure many cycles should be spent persuading me to buy the next pair of comfy comfy bedroom slippers. Mm. You mentioned uh, workforce automation, and I promise this is our last uh, topic because uh, I I I really just uh, could talk to you forever because you you know so much about so many things. But uh, finally, workforce uh, automation, because I, I heard your podcast on the future of work and democracy in the information mm-hmm. age with Matthew Taylor. Mm-hmm. And a few months ago, I was also in a podcast with John Hagel, the leader of Center of the Edge at uh, Deloitte and oh, Faculty yeah, sure, at Singularity yeah. University. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and his belief is that we have to shift the workforce in a way in which companies need to encourage their employees to look for new problems to solve and thus find new ways to work. But it seems like everyone has a different take on what the future of work will look like. I mean, I've read reports estimating that everything from 50% of all jobs are going to disappear to a mere 2% of jobs being fully subject to automation. What is your take 
Uh, how do you think technology is going to affect the way we work? I mean, not the obvious stuff, but what kind of imp- repercussions or opportunities can we expect to see? And what, how should companies be planning for a workforce that potentially, um, kind of depending on what your answer is, will be largely automized? Ah, well, the, <laughs> it, it's a really difficult question because uh, the, there's a bunch of unknowns. The first one is um, what is a rate of automation and what, would act, what will actually unfold uh, and the data suggests that the rate of automation is in some cases not as fast as people expected. But as we t- started in our conversation, we said that improvements are happening very, very quickly. And I think the second question is, is what responsibilities, legal responsibilities or obligations do companies actually have to their, to, to their workers? Because that will normally set the upper bound of what they will end up doing, right? Companies will do what they are obliged to by law and no more. Uh, and that would be a problem because you might therefore not be obliged to worry about what you do with 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 workers. Um, and perhaps you should be. And in particular, if those workers are concentrated in particular local economies, which would end up having this sort of multiplying effect in devastating uh, local economies. So the this is where we, we started about having talking about needing to get people to engage in the question. Because it's not as if we have run out of work that needs to be done or problems that need to be addressed. Uh, It's just that we're allocating and prioritizing perhaps some of the wrong things um, and the wrong questions. So if I think about what does a workforce of the future look like, the workforce of the future feels to me like it will have um, very much fewer employees, very many more people who are spending more time learning new things and moving from project to project. Now, does that mean 80% of people are living like that or or, or or 10%? Probably more like 10% than 80% because these sorts of changes take a long time to implement in human systems. But it's, it's, it's quite, I would argue that the evidence is quite strongly points to people needing to continually upskill and continually be able to set their agendas. So if you go back to the description that you you, you gave me of John's uh, co- comments, in a way, what he's describing is a broadening out and a magnification of the way that the firms who have the most high performing workforces, like the top end management consultancies or the top technology companies operate, which is that they present their employees with new opportunities and the employees are sufficiently skilled and self-directed to identify new opportunities themselves. And, and I can imagine that that is, a, that is a very, very lofty goal. And if everybody had the job satisfaction they get at working at the very, very top firms, that would be a great place to, to get to. But, but I think it's probably quite hard given not just education and skill levels, but also given people's expectations and the, the, uh, of what they should be asking for from work and the capabilities they have to ask the questions about the questions. Because certainly in, 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 if I look at the UK, the way in which people are educated is not to be educated in a creative and critical way. Um, it's to be educated in a very rote learning, standardised way, which is designed to create good office workers for the perfect office of the 1980s. Exactly. Um, it's also worth noting that historically, uh, I mean, tendencies of automation and technology is basically just kind of it's created more jobs than it has removed, and it's also increased productivity. This is this is correct, no? Because I, I I also hear skepticisms of that claim. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's um, the the long run evidence is that. 
technology always creates more jobs. The argument, there are two different arguments today as to why we should be worried about that. So the first is that, you know, we have a much more highly interconnected uh, economy globally, which trans transfers information much, much faster across it, which means that both the scale and the speed of a switch of a transition can be faster than, say, it was in the 18th or 19th century. And that, that the difficulty happens not in the higher energy level. People are happier in the 20th century or were than they were in the 18th. It's the transition period that becomes difficult. And even fast adjusting economies can't necessarily adjust as quickly as as a transition this current transition might hit them uh, and that will then have lots of impacts on sort of stability and happiness and you know aggression and general uh, general sort of uh disenchantment with the world so that's one argument the second argument is a kind of singularitarian argument which is that robots are going to get so good at doing every job there won't be any room for for humans so i, I don't think the second is 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 likely because will continue to create classes of jobs that weren't really jobs um, you know in history like a podcaster right is a new type of job that didn't exist 30 years ago well, we can continue to do that so long as we feel that there's value in it but i think the issue is more about the speed with which the transition might happen and our ability to absorb the, those changes um, in that in in that transition, and and I think that's where we have to spend quite a lot of our capital to think about how do we affect that in a way that is not incredibly damaging to our societies. I I read that Gartner said that eighty five percent of all Americans, I believe it was, uh, are disengaged at work. So we obviously have potential uh, there. But I'm sensitive of your time, and I know that we are uh, way uh, over time. Um, but before I let you off the hook, I want to ask you three. Standard questions. If you could give your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would that be? Oh, my 20-year-old self, one piece of advice, it would be spend more time outdoors than with your friends. Mm, great advice. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast is called Talking Politics uh, from a guy called David Runciman, who's a Cambridge University academic, which is absolutely wonderful. And where should people go to follow you? Uh, they can find me on uh, at Azim at Twitter. Awesome. Azim, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. I wish I could talk to you for many more hours because yeah. trust me, there's so many things that uh, both me and my listeners would love to pick your brains on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future Forecast podcast. I'm Isabel Ringnas. Tune in next week for more insights and expert tips on technology, leadership and sustainability. 